What is tech for good exactly? Well, whatever you thought it was a generation ago or perhaps even a decade ago, that thought, that definition, that very concept has changed dramatically from a planet in peril to people being deeply in debt to inequalities of race, gender, and resources. There is much work for the financial services world to do. To tell us all about her views, we have the one and only Dynamo, Theodora Lau. She's the author of a new book, Beyond Good, How Technology is Driving a Purpose-Driven Business Revolution, here on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody back to the Dave and Darm Demystify Show and today we're going to demystify what is tech for good and who better than the author of beyond good the book which is all about tech for good right and this is a lady that is so prolific on social media i do not know what her day job is because she's at this like a machine so theodora Lau, do you need an introduction i am just me <laughs> <laughs> and that's just awesome I am just me. Thank you. I do have a day job. I like to joke to people that I actually have three jobs. So I have my clients that I need to create work and deliver work for. I have the podcast and the social media and my weekly blog, which I am happy to announce I'm about to start an additional column in a certain publication that a lot of you are familiar with. More to come on that. And I have my third job, which is a mom, and that's a full-time job. So it's a load, but it's fun. Awesome. Hats off to you. I don't know how you fit it all in. I have a digital self, a digital twin, right? That's what you guys say. <laughs> yeah. Or a clone. I'm actually cloning. This is not me you're talking. So is it the digital self that is written the book? Yeah, maybe. No, actually, the book was fun. It was certainly an experience. I'll call it that. We got approached by a publisher. That was way before COVID happened. And when it was all said and done, the only thing that was on our mind was, wow, how do we continue to travel the world and see our clients and deliver on our projects at the same time, figure out how to deliver a book? That was our problem, or so we thought, back in December of 2019. And then the world turned upside down in March 2020. The challenge at that time mostly was Bradley had two kids with his family on the West Coast. I have my two kids with my family on the East Coast, trying to coordinate the schedules for four children during virtual learning and trying to figure out what's going on and trying to run a business. That was a lot. I used to joke that it was a miracle that 
Brad and I are still talking as much as we screamed at each other. It was really hard. I won't sugarcoat it. It was a very difficult time. I think mental health wise, right? A lot of us talked about it, even the impact on children. You can still see the impact. I certainly see it with my kids looking at how they interact with people or not interact with people, how they're a little bit worried about being in public and whatnot. It's going to be a process. And it's the same for us adults, right? It's an interesting time. Tell us a bit more about what you actually cover within the book itself. Yeah. So the book is called Beyond Good. When we first conceptualized it, we want it to be a book that highlights stories of success, stories of hope, stories that we have collected around the world from different people who have come on our podcast, as well as people we have talked to that are doing good for the world that show us there is a different way of doing businesses. So we have highlighted, for example, stories of David Reiling, who's the CEO of Sunrise Banks, a B Corp bank in Minnesota that services immigrants and the lower third, as they will call it, those who traditional banks ignored and don't think about. We also highlight stories of Aspiration as a fintech startup in the United States run by Andre. And um, he used to be a speechwriter for Al Gore and very much focused on getting people to understand the impact of our actions and money on the environment and showing us there is a different way where to park your money. And we also highlight industries outside of financial services. One of my favorites was Tony Chocoloni. Oh, yeah. That highlights, yeah, using blockchain technology to make sure he doesn't have dirty beans in his supply chain. Or Lego, right? I'm a big Lego fan. So looking at how people from all walks of life, from different corners of the earth, trying to do good, do good for the people they serve, do good for the society we all live in, and do good for the planet Earth that we all share as home. That was what the book was about. And then COVID hit. And we actually didn't so much shift per se, but it made us appreciate more themes that we highlighted where we overlaid on top of the book, the aging demographics, a challenge yet an opportunity, the rising inequalities, not just between countries, but also within countries that we've seen in a lot of developed economies, such as the United States, the widening wealth gap, shall we say, and also the rise of gig economy workers. Some would make it sound very romantic, as in a way you have flexibility in where you work and when you work, but there's a dark side to it, isn't it? Because we are not really serving those customers within financial services the way they need to be served. We forget about them. They don't fit in our model because they don't have a steady paycheck. They don't have a lot of the things that we look for within banking. And yet it was amazing to highlight how some of these companies in Southeast Asia, for example, who are able to come up with innovative way to service gig economy workers. And so that was what we wrapped the book around was some of the themes that we had seen in the past few years. And how does that apply to us? How do we change the way we operate in order to address the changing trends of the world. And when COVID hit, we added more material sources and to talk about the impact that we saw and how we are seeing all of these themes being more important in what we do. It became an urgency, a call to action. This is real and this is even more real than we thought. All in, I think we finished writing the book because we took three months break in the middle to take care of our kids. 
it was a labor of love, but more so we felt that it was more important than ever to get that book out in the hands of people like you guys, people that believe that we can create a better future for everyone. The timing of the book is so prescient. Obviously, we've had COVID, but, you know, you and I have exchanges around things like the climate emergency as well. One of the things I think is great about the book is the story. So there are people who are doing an amazing job of actually looking at things like inclusion, looking at impact. Tony's chocolate is by far the nicest chocolate out there. And, you know, he's doing good just doing that as well. The timing's just so perfect. Since you published the book, have you seen the movement towards that urgency increasing? I would be lying if I say that I am not worried about the current economic condition, right? Because we are seeing a pullback in capital. We are seeing people be more cautious about deploying where they want to send the money to. My question would then become, Will these other fintech startups that are focusing on communities, that are focusing on real needs, will they continue to receive the funding that they need to scale? Because we always know what happens, right? When things get tough, the first ones that will get impacted the most are female founders or entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds on themes that, you know, VCs don't typically think about. We've seen it with female funding, for example. I mean, you know, even before the downturn happened, last year was the year we received the lowest percentage of fintech funding in the last five years. You can't tell me that there's no money because clearly there is a record-breaking it, it, rounds yeah. everywhere, right? We are like uh, minting unicorn after unicorn and decacorn, and I don't even know what else comes after that. So there's no lack of money, but there's a lack of intention and funding the people who had been ignored. And you can't tell me that you didn't know that they need money because we've been talking about it for years now. And yet, despite all of that, female founders got the least percentage of funding last year and the past five. And that was when things were good. So what's going to happen this year, next year when things get tough? Yeah, I mean, natural cycles are going to follow, right? That all the funding starts to dry up and all the criteria starts to move up. You know, people will advertise with pre-seed funding, but they don't really do pre-seed. They'll be looking for revenue and some market traction, right? We all know that. It's shocking, but it's real. I'm surprised, you know, I have seen in the venture community, a bit like the banks, right? Specialization on the types of funding that they'll do. Those funds that are focused on green technology, funds that have been focused on black founders, and actually funds that were focused on female founders, right? But I guess what you're highlighting is that's not enough yet. We still need more, a lot more, a long way to go, right? We have a very long way to go. It's like a drop in the bucket compared to everything else. But when we talk about technology adoption, my mantra is like, look, you know, innovation happens quick and adoption happens really slow. So, you know, the fact that we've got some VC focused, you know, specific segments is a good thing. But for it to get to the mass, to have meaningful dent in terms of reach, I think it's going to take at least a decade, right? Oh, a decade. I was thinking 200 years. (laughs) (laughs) We'd all love it to be sooner, right? But that's just natural at the moment. You know, I say it's natural because things like the Internet took 
20 years for the masses, as in more than 50% to be using it. Mobile banking took 15 years, right? So some of these things take a long time. So where is it for me to actually do anything? This is where I'll challenge people. Do not look at people as one atom, if you will. Look at them as what will happen if you extend the circle bigger. We all have parents. We all have children. If you start looking at things from a wider perspective, so I always use myself as an example. I'm 49 this year. My parents are in the late 70s. My kids are in primary school. They're still young. In 10 years' time, I will be 60. I will be like at this stage that banks don't really want to have anything to do with me because they think I'm just going to send money off to my kids. But my parents will be in the 80s, which means that I will need to start taking care of them, right? In the late 80s, we all know what happens is financial caregiving and all kinds of responsibilities that come. And then my kids will be in college, which means that I also need to think about helping them get started in, you know, tuition and settling them in and et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of needs. So I will literally have three different big life events that will be happening. My question to the banks is, what are you doing for me? What are you doing for me right now to help me plan for what's to come in the next 10 years? That's business opportunity for you. That's not just about decumulating, right? And that's helping me manage my financial life. And on top of it, show that you are actually doing something for the next generation because 60%, percent of new caregivers are Gen Zs and millennials. So if you want to run off to those younger generations, just don't come up with a glossy app and say, yeah, I can afford to like lose money for the next few years just because I'm a big bank and I can do something for them. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Here in the UK, we have a big trend towards financial wellness. So I think every bank talks about financial wellness and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the US as well. You know, I think about financial wellness exactly in the terms you're describing it. I've got a kind of past and a future. But, you know, when I think about money, I think about money in often very negative terms. I never see that represented in anything that is out there. And I sort of find that really, really interesting. And, you know, I'm reasonably well off. I'm white, middle class. I'm not on the breadline. And then you think about, geez, all the people are on the breadline. If banks can't even address me and you, then what hope have we got of them addressing people, even at the margins? Don, what were some of the stats we were sharing about the number of people who are going to tip into poverty because of the cost of living? I mean, it's like tens of percentage of people in this country will tip into poverty because of what's going on at the moment. There's 11 million people that have £100 saved. That means basically the gas bill is going to eradicate their £100 saving, right? Which means that they go into making choices between do I wash my clothes? Do I put the heating on, you know? I had a story of some lady. She's in her 80s and she goes and sits on buses all day because she can't afford to heat her house. And you end up going, geez, you know, one wonders, has anybody really solved these issues at all? Or are they paying lip service to it? <laughs> I think you already know. We talk a lot about digital transformation. We talk a lot about technical debt. We don't talk enough about moral debt. 
what is our responsibility to those around us? What is our responsibility to our society? That is our moral debt. Are we focusing on the right thing? I would say no. Have we even tried to focus on the right thing? I would say not enough, right? I remember last year during COVID, my kids were homeschooled for a year and a half before schools opened back up in September. And I remember one of the stats that came through was one in four children in the United States at that time were food insecure. And I told my kids, I said, you know what that means? That means that in your class of 24 kids, six of them, if they're lucky enough to turn on their computer in the morning to be in that virtual class with you, they are doing it hungry. Can you imagine that? Mm -hmm. One in four children in the wealthiest country of the world, in a country where the 10 wealthiest people can afford to spend each of them $1 million, together $10 million, and it will take them 414 years to spend it down. This country. And half of the world is living below the poverty line half of the world's population and i question are we doing the right thing enough hardly not enough i had a conversation with the ceo of a bank about this kind of purpose-driven thing and he's a good guy but he said look you know dom i've got shareholders to answer to as well right and we are a business we're here to make money and i'm like well yeah i get that and there is a good way of making money and it may be a lot harder, but it should be the right way to make money. You know, it's not money at any cost. And that is the shift. I think we're starting to see transparency and other things that enlighten people. So the brands that they buy from, et cetera, right? But unless we as the people also move with our feet and we stop banking with these banks that are investing in, in ethical companies and fossil fuels and whatever, right? Unless we vote with our feet, I think it's going to be difficult I agree. to make this change happen any faster. Mm -hmm. But how do you do that on a mass basis, right? Because even those people that are struggling, you know, need a safe place to keep their money, right? Well, that was part of what drove us to write the book. We believe there is a different way, right? And the likes of Andre Cheney and David Ryling, they're showing us there is a different way. The easiest way, probably not, but... I don't think the planet cares if it's hard or easy. I don't think the virus cares what demographic of people you're living in amounts to yourselves. It does not care. We do not have a plan B. We don't have a plan B. This is our earth. People can shit themselves up in space for fun. That's wonderful. That's like what a handful of them. What about the billions that are living on this earth? Yeah. We do not have another plan. This is our home, right? Who wouldn't want to take care of their own home? Right. Completely. But it's amazing how the answer to that is not straightforward, you know. When we look at the industry we're in, we're in the fintech industry, we love the fintech industry. And yet, some of the darlings of the fintech industry, you know, some of the biggest companies are the buy now, pay later companies. And I feel like they're actually about to have a moment of reckoning. You can kind of see that bad debts going up for them. But one of the things that slightly bothers me is just how these companies have got so big so quickly and are the darlings of our industry. There isn't a loud counter argument in where's the save now, buy later, which I think should be equally out there. So I was just interested if you've got any kind of perspective on that. And I know it's probably a very unfair question. No, it's not unfair. 
It's <laughs> <laughs> a really sick question. Actually, there is a save now, pay later in the United States. We have interviewed Michael on our podcast before because I thought that was fascinating. He says consumerism is not bad, right? Consuming things are fine. We have nothing against people consuming things. We have nothing against capitalism, but do it in a responsible manner. And so his company is helping to advocate people. If you see something you like that you want, we will help you save towards the purchase of that. That just sounds way too logical for our industry. But yet, voila, here we are. <laughs> yeah, that just sounds like weird science, to be honest. So it is right it's a, it's a, <laughs> i have nothing against helping people pay in installment that is not a new concept right it's been around for a long time what i have a problem with is how it is being executed and marketed in a way to consumers that you don't have to worry because you can just pay a small amount and you can get whatever it is that you want. That is where I have a problem because a lot of these models are based on fees. Yeah, yeah. If you miss the payment, it's going to get expensive. Do consumers know that? And now it's growing into if you miss multiple of these, it might have an impact on your credit report. Do consumers know that? And while you're doling out all of these different ways of helping people buy more stuff, where is the tool to help them manage it? Because if you have like three or four of these buy now, pay later relations, how do I even know when I need to pay what and whom and how much on top of everything else that you already have, credit card bills, student loan and whatever else? I agree. There was an article from the Citizens Advice Bureau here in the UK. I remember that one. 39% of people didn't know that they were customers of a buy now, pay later company. So I was like, well, how can people not know? I did some research. I persuaded my daughters that we do a bit of shopping and we tried a buy now, pay later service. And I discovered I was a customer and it was sort of like, oh, when did I ever sign up to that? It was like just incredible. So what you're saying is then compounded if people don't even know their customers. So where's the ethics in that, right? And that's where I have a problem because if you look back at how FinTech started many years ago, we wanted to do things differently. We want to beat up, you know, those incumbents that are so evil and big bad wolves. Look at where we are right now as an industry. I wouldn't necessarily call us, you know, ethical or doing what we need to do to help consumers. Yeah, sure, there are founders that are doing a lot of stuff, but by and large, we just making things glossier and you know, pushing banks to perhaps remove some of those fees while tagging on different types of fees in a different way. Have we fundamentally changed how people get services and how we help them on a more secure long-term journey? That's why I have a question because I don't know. We've... Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is there should be more stuff around the regulations on this because, you know, we've gone through years, a couple of decades of mis-selling and banks have learned very, very acutely the cost of mis-selling products, right? And it seems that, you know, it hasn't applied to buy now, pay later. It should, right? We shouldn't have this 39% that doesn't know that they've got this product because it should be right up in their face. It should. This is what it's going to cost them if they're late. The other thing that I have a problem with is the business model actually feeds on the fact that it makes out that you can afford this and therefore you can afford more. 
And their business model is incentivized to give these loans for free by helping the retailers sell more, right? And that's the problem I have with that model. But, you know, how do you stop that? And fly now, pay later. I've seen a lot of those now. I cannot make a reservation without popping my face. Oh, here, it's so easy to fly to whatever destination you want because it's only for this amount of money. And you break it down, it becomes digestible. And you think, oh, yeah, you know, the last years have been really hard. Maybe we should, right, go on a vacation without thinking back. What does that mean to my overall financial picture? And don't get me wrong. I think there is also a big elephant in the room, which is if people are financially okay, if they are being paid a living wage, perhaps we wouldn't see as many consumers needing to use these services to pay for essentials. Why do people need to use Pineapple Later service to pay for gas at the gas station or to pay for bread and all of this? Because some of those reports in the UK as well as the US who came out and said it was a big percentage of people, double digit, who are using Pineapple Later services for day-to-day essentials. So I think there is a bigger problem with our economy that we need to think about. How do we bring people back to a state where they don't have to worry about putting food on the table versus getting medicine or, you know, doing laundry or paying for air conditioning? It's really, really interesting. Well, listen, we're almost out of time. So the point you've just made kind of is so resonant, though, because we sort of exist within this broader context. When I look at the broader context of what's about to happen over the next few months or years, you know, it's going to be quite bumpy. Really finding ways to kind of lean into opportunities to find propositions that are all about inclusion and benefiting everybody, I think is just such an important thing to be doing. Thank you so much. I thought the book is brilliant, by the way, and we'll provide links to it. Thank you in the podcast blurb. I would encourage anyone who's interested in thinking about the whole topic, just go to Amazon and buy the book because it's brilliant. It's a brilliant read. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of inspiration in there. I always think doing the right thing is tough, but it's well worth the rewards. And it's good to see so many good examples of you know people doing just that. I'd also like to thank you, Theo, as well for raising awareness. And you do a fantastic job of that, by the way, because we can't make these changes ourselves, right? I want to close with this one quote that Mackenzie Scott wrote in her medium recently. And she said, helping any of us can help us all. And that goes into the heart of everything that all of us are trying to do, right? It's not just about charity or philanthropy. It's about actually helping those who are working hard and try to make the world a better place. Because if we can give them that little lift and with the power of many of us doing it together, I think we will have a chance for a better future. Awesome. Fabulous. What a brilliant way to end. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.